Welcome to the Mobile Monger Podcast, where we go behind the scenes in the cheese world to chat with the people making, selling, or distributing your favorite specialty food products. I'm your host, Janae Muha, certified cheese professional, longtime cheesemonger, and producer advocate. Farming is a long and arduous career that many don't understand the full scope of. Caring for land and animals is a 24-hour job that only intensifies when human children are added to the mix. Arlene Hunter and Katie Palmer address this side of the farming world in their podcast, Barnyard Language, and they show me a snippet of the difficulties and joys of raising farm kids. From the traumas of childbirth, the stark differences between the U.S. and Canadian farming structures, we tackle a few heavy topics while also reveling in the wonders of creating delicious food products. My name is uh, Arlene Hunter and I live on a dairy farm in eastern Ontario, Canada. So I live here with my husband who's the sixth generation on this piece of property and our four kids who are 17, 15, 12 and 8. So we milk Holsteins and um, yeah, that's our uh, day-to-day <laughs> lifestyle, milking cows. I'm Katie Palmer. I live in far northeast Iowa um, with my husband and our two kids. Our kids are the fifth generation on this farm. Um, They're six and almost five, just six and almost five. Um, We raise beef cattle and sheep for meat. My husband and I both work full-time off-farm as well, and Arlene and I co-host the Barnyard Language podcast, which is an ag parenting podcast. Amazing. That's how I met you guys was through that. And so I'm excited to hear more about that and also um, get some insight on. I want to talk about what it's like to be a parent in a farm on a farm. Um, So Arlene, I think we'll start with you. And like, just can you tell me a little bit about your farm? Like how many cows are you milking? What do you do with that milk? Um, What does the day to day look like on the farm? Sure. Yeah. So we, like I said, we're milking Holsteins and we have a 80 stall, tie stall barn here. Um, so that means that the cows are tied during milking time and the people move to them. So we have, we milk, we have eight milkers um, on a track system basically. So we don't have to carry the milkers, but they go in between each, each pair of cows. So we milk twice a day at this point. At, at a, another point in our career, we uh, were milking three times a day, but we've scaled back back down to the kind of more typical twice a day milking so on a yeah normally 80 cows milking and then we raise all of our own replacements so that means we're keeping basically all of the females Um, so we have usually in the barn around 180 total animals from newborn calves to heifers pregnant heifers and then the dry cows who are in their rest period before they have their next calf Um, and we're on a a whole year system where we live so I know in some places they milk you know everyone calves out at the same time and they, they milk for a time and they have a dry period but our goal is to have cows calving 365 days a year or you know as much as possible at least all the way through the year so that we have a, a regular milk supply at all times and being in Canada we actually have a supply management system for dairy for cow dairy not if you were milking goats or sheep that's different Um, but for us we have to sell to the milk board essentially or for us it's called dairy farmers of ontario so we buy quota or own quota which gives us the right to ship a certain amount of milk and that milk all goes into the same system and then the dairy farmers of ontario actually designate where it all goes so most of the time our milk is going to a a cheese plant about an hour away but it just depends on supply and demand on any given day it can be shipped further or um, there was a time where there was a chocolate factory although not all that far away for so for some years our our milk was in was in hershey chocolate until that place shut down so just it kind of depends we don't always know where our milk is going to end up but most of the fluid well all the fluid milk and a lot of the the dairy products in Canada are all from within the country so our we don't actually 
process any of our own milk or make anything <laughs> out of it, I guess. But it goes to and uh, could be in our local grocery store. I guess we just have to know that it's out there. <laughs> That's really cool. Um, I have some friends in Canada and they have definitely shown me how how Canadians are dealing with their milk market because it's a much different beast in the United States and not nearly as uh they don't get any help <laughs> from the government really like hardly at all even yeah. though everybody will tell you oh well everything's subsidized in the United States mm, okay well but not right. really and the thing is it's it's a system that the government supports us on, but we aren't actually subsidized. So it's kind of interesting in that way. So the government gives us support in terms of creating high tariffs, which provides a barrier so that other people can't import cheap milk into our system. So that means that you can't send it in from the States. You know, that's obviously going to be our main source, but you also can't bring in milk powder from New Zealand or from other countries. So the government gives us support in that way but our price is actually based on the cost of production which you know is is determined by averaging out you know the cost of everyone across the province and so it actually is is equitable and we're being paid for our product in a way that makes sense to us but it actually doesn't require a subsidy beyond the fact that the government is interfering in the the free market so i mean some people have issues with that part but i also think you know there's Obviously, there's lots of benefits in terms of being able to sustain an industry across the country rather than, you know, a bunch of large farms producing all the milk, which happens in a lot of other places. It means a lot of smaller producers can make a product that they can actually get paid fairly for. And then we know how much we're allowed to produce. So, I mean, it does it is, does impact growth. If there were people who wanted to expand their operations, that is difficult and expensive for sure. But it also allows those smaller family farms to support themselves and, you know, to be spread out and support their communities in terms of spending and all that kind of stuff. You said the key word equitable. <laughs> that is yeah. the key word. <laughs> Absolutely. There's actually just recently, like over Christmas, there was a really bad snowstorm in a big chunk of the province and a whole bunch of people had to dump milk because there were entire counties where they had to close the roads. So it meant that those producers who had to dump milk they're spreading that cost to all of us. So while we didn't have to dump milk because the trucks were able to get here and they were able to get to processors, we take a bit of a cut because a bunch of people had to dispose of their product. They couldn't sell it, but it also, you know, it spreads the risk, right? And, you know, it was nobody's fault. It just happened. And so we all take a little bit of a, a price hit, but it means that those people who lost their product, they don't have to take all of that loss. That's community care right there. That's, yeah. you know, that's the ideal, I think. <laughs> May not always be perfect, but, you know, whatever, it's best for everybody. Um, So, Katie, your uh life is very different on a meat farm. So tell me about that. So we have, I'm like looking out the window trying to count cows. <laughs> um, We have about 15 cow-calf pairs. So we have generally somewhere between 15 and 40 beef animals on the farm um, because we have you know cows and then young calves and then feeders that are getting ready to go to be processed um, we raise predominantly normandy beef they're short they're fat you don't eat the bones there's no reason for them to be taller um, they're good mothers they do well on grass and they're pretty um, we also raise Katahdin hair sheep, so they're entirely for meat. They don't, they grow wool, but they shed it all out in the spring. Um, we were direct marketing all of our meat until the pandemic hit, and we also had two very young children and doing three farmers markets a week, plus restaurants, plus wholesale, with two very small kids. Um, when it went from being able to book a locker date you know, two months in advance to literally, for a while, it was two and a half years out. So we were, people were booking locker dates for animals that were not conceived yet, let alone ready to process, um, destroyed our business, which for us wasn't a big deal because we were backing out of it anyway, because of the children. Um, 
especially taking two little kids to farmer's market. I don't know if anyone else has tried it, but it doesn't, <laughs> does not go well. And what I was paying for childcare was eating our profits. And I'd like to actually see my kids. We had them because we wanted to spend time with them. So that's kind of a thing. Um, so now all of our animals go to the sale barn and go from there to get processed. We're looking at going back to doing some um, direct market, but only you know quarters, halves, and whole animals, just because the selling by the pound is a great way to meet new customers, but it's one pound at a time, which the time commitment is very different than saying, you know, here's a whole damn cow, enjoy. Um, but there's still just a lot of red tape and the, the sale barn is not our emotional ideal for how to, how to deal with our animals, but it's convenient and they write a check and you get a check right away and it's easy. So that's that. Um, and being in a free market economy, it seems like maybe we should just open the borders and let all the people who think that, you know, a totally free market could live in one country and everybody else could live in the other country and just split it up. Because, you know, the folks who have a problem with the government interfering, I think, are should be welcome to come here and try the, the race to the bottom, especially in the dairy industry, and try that out. I'm just saying that I'm sure probably a lot of my listeners are going to be like, what, you have sheep and you don't milk them? Don't you know sheep milk is like the hot thing right now? <laughs> not that like I get meat sheep are not the same as dairy sheep, and but still. <laughs> I have had to milk a few of ours to, you know, tube feed lambs occasionally if things go poorly. And I'm assuming like the difference between beef cattle and dairy cattle, that the uh, emotional stability of the animal is fairly different. <laughs> um, <laughs> our sheep are not down with being milked. And they also, I know it's true in goats and cattle, so I'm going to assume it's true in sheep that the um, size and shape of the teats is very different on a meat animal where it has not been selected for ease of milking. So I don't, yeah, I know that sheep milk cheese is a big thing, but I don't see it becoming a, a thing here. Yeah. I mean, fair enough. It's uh, the, the idea of like consumers think that like, well, why don't we have as much sheep milk in the United States, like sheep milk cheeses, like most of what you get in the stores, Manchego, like your Spanish ones. Um, but they don't realize the red tape that has been surrounding sheep milk in the United States for so long. Um, the One of the funniest things in my life I think I've ever seen was during the American Cheese Society's conference and we were doing the award ceremony and we had a half an hour presentation from the one and only John Greeley, who was talking about importing uh, sheep semen being able to for the first time since like the 90s essentially and first time i've ever seen an entire crowd erupt in applause and hoots and hollers over sheep semen like it was wild but insanely funny and also just like well it is the crowd that i'm with <laughs> we do get excited about sheep semen being imported into the united states finally <laughs> so maybe we finally can have great sheep milk cheese being made we're starting to we're starting to but it's a an expensive and slow process yeah semen is a hot topic in lots of different committees and it i is. know that kate katie and i have both had a, probably had many dinner table conversations <laughs> that involved semen talk not not sheep necessarily but yes <laughs> of the of the bovine variety for our family, at least, that's why we don't go to nice places, because we will do things like talking about semen at the dinner table, even if we're out in public. And in our small town pizza parlor, nobody cares. Um, but you go somewhere nicer, and it's it's kind of frowned upon to be <laughs> talking about, you know, semen at the dinner table, generally. Well, and I'm sure you guys get the magazines, too, of like, you know, 
the semen magazines. I've only, you know, had the, I've been to a few farms where they've had them and I'm always like looking through them like, wow, they really gussied up these, uh, these cows to. Yeah. Plus all the merch, right? If you buy enough, then, we, you know, you got the hats and the, you know, the coats with the semen company logos. And that's usually like, if we travel, that's how you pick out the other farmers, right? So like <laughs> seed companies, semen companies. <laughs> tractors well we're off to a great start already talking about semen so you know what we're good to go yeah it feels like the same way um i work for a subsidiary of microsoft and you know like all the tech bros everything has the company name on it and it's kind of the same for farmers you know so as a a tech bro who also farms i don't think i own anything that doesn't have somebody else's name on it that's fine most of my stuff is cheese swag i mean i literally have a cheese sweatshirt on right now so there's that i have my company sweatshirt on yeah (laughs) we we do what we do yep um so y'all's podcast is about parenting and farming so um Let's talk about kids on the farm. Like, how many kids do y'all have? Um, how do you manage that? I mean, we've already kind of touched on a little bit of that of like, how do you go to a farmer's market with two children? Um, so how do you kind of like work that day to day of being a parent and a farm? And then Katie, you also have both of you are full time jobs outside of farming plus two kids. So, yeah, let's get into it. Let's talk about all of that. Yeah, so I'll start again. Um, So like I said in my intro, my kids are ranging from 17 to 8. So I will admit that I was working an off-farm job before I had kids. And when I had my first maternity leave, which in Canada was a year, um, I was like, well, I wasn't a farmer before. So um, (laughs) I don't need to farm full-time on my, uh, my mat leave. And I also got a you know, a rude awakening, I suppose, in many ways. Um, My first child was not the content baby that you could just pop in a car seat and take to a coffee shop or, you know, bring with you to the barn and she would just sit there and sleep. I had a, I had a colicky crier who um, for most of the first two years of her life was not (laughs) content with very much. Um, So I was a stay-at-home parent and my husband was a farmer for the first many years of, of our you know, child raising years. Um, I helped where I could, but my father were on the same property where my my in-laws live. And my father-in-law, when we started out having children, was younger and was still farming full-time. And we had employees that worked with us. So because I think it was probably easier for me because I didn't have a farming role before I had kids. And so really working on the farm has been something that I've transitioned into more slowly as my kids have gotten older. So our schedule right now looks like me getting up with my husband and milking in the morning, um, mostly before the kids are even awake. Um, we get He gets up at four, I get up at 4.30. We milk cows and, um, you know, do then all the cleanup tasks. And I'm usually back in the house after morning milking in that 7.30 uh range so my older two are already up and probably have left to go to high school and the younger two who still go to elementary school are maybe awake or i maybe come in and wake them up so the morning routine just looks like you know lots of people get up and work out before their kids wake up so i uh, go and milk cows before my kids wake up and you know they're in in school during the day now and then our afternoon schedule kind of depends a little bit on the time of year and we now have older kids who have chores so um my daughter has a few shifts afternoon shifts a week where she milks she's the oldest and then my 15 year old um has kind of a smaller job that he has to has has to do every afternoon so he goes to the barn every afternoon for 45 minutes to an hour or so um and then the the elementary school age kids don't have daily chores at this point, just the way the school schedule works out. They don't get back until later in the day. And so, yeah, I mean, at this point, it's just everybody's kind of got their tasks and uh, it works. I mean, not to say that it's not not busy, but um, yeah, it's farm life in, especially dairy farm life, 
is predictable in as much as it's not right so there's there's a lot of you know everyday tasks that need to get done there's lots of stuff that comes up too but um so yeah you divide the work between a bunch of people and it gets done so that kind of answers your yeah <laughs> no i'm just impressed that you're i mean so many people will say teenagers are so difficult to deal with but you're teenagers are up and getting themselves ready for school and out the door on their own without you having to be there. And I think a lot of people would look at that and be like, I don't think my kids would do that, but it's a little different when they're kind of born into that life to a certain extent, I guess. Yeah. And my, my 17 year old, actually, it's not, uh, we also show animals a bit in the spring and summer months. So in, uh, in the spring, or I guess starting kind of late spring, she will come out she has kind of a, a show string of heifers that she has taken on so she will go out and do a few of her heifer feeding chores before school in the morning the rest rest of the year they don't have to get up and do anything before school thankfully I know there are some farms where that's what needs to happen but they uh, yeah they don't have to do chores before school but that you know in some families is is an expectation too yeah so Katie how do you manage the littles and the, the farm caffeine and no sleep that's, that's basically it <laughs> yeah. um we honestly my husband and i were trying to think i was 32 when we got married so not old but certainly older for the rural area the average age of first marriage around here is like 23 or something so um and we tried for almost four years to have kids and it just wasn't happening and so we gave up and started the adoption process and in that process, um, they tripled the size of our sheep flock and contracted to go from, um, I think, five beef cows to the number that we currently have, and then got pregnant with our first kid, like, a week after we contracted for these cattle, um, which was also... Um, I want to say I found out I was pregnant, like, two weeks before our first farmer's market and then had two kids 16 months apart. So all of that was just full chaos at all times. Um, and I was actually baking professionally um, when we started having kids and quit working and stayed home because it wasn't enough money to pay for childcare. Um, so I, because I, I work from home off farm, which is kind of a confusing thing, but I work remotely. Um, I also get up at 4.30 most mornings and work for a few hours before the kids get up. And then my husband does the majority of the farming, um, which is has been a really hard transition for me, um, just because I don't, I don't feel involved in anything. And then when I am included in decisions i don't feel like i have any of the information i need to make a good decision because i'm not boots on the ground doing it um so it becomes sort of a weird thing like you know include me but don't ask me to actually be included because i don't have the time or the bandwidth to actually participate but don't leave me out of it either which is a rough thing um, and it was not I was not anticipating the level of grief I found in not being involved in the farm. I remember um, the first lambing season after we had our daughter, she would have been three months old. And I remember standing, you know, like every farmhouse, our kitchen sink looks out over the farmyard. I, it's just a thing, I guess. Um, and I remember, you know, standing there at the sink and I was wearing her and I'm washing dishes and I'm watching everybody else is going out to the barn to play with lambs basically and I'm just in the house with the baby and I remember just standing there sobbing because everybody else's life just went on you know and having a baby kind of stopped my life right there and I mean my kids are absolutely the best thing that has ever happened to me they're absolutely the best thing in my life but I think we don't give people any space to talk about the fact that the best thing in your life can also be the hardest thing in your life and that it's it's not an either or you know and 
that we're incredibly blessed to be raising our kids on the farm and with my in-laws right across the road, but it does come with all these other complications and never sleeping. So that's kind of... I mean, I definitely think that I don't have kids myself, but I think that that is definitely something we need to give more space for, that dichotomy of like, yes, this child is what I want. But that doesn't mean it doesn't take away from the other things in my life that I also want, um, because you are so tied to that child and for forever, but especially when they're little, little like that, they are just stuck to you. So you don't have another choice. So um, thank you for bringing that up. Well, I think more so for women, um, just culturally this expectation that you're a terrible person if you have any level of grief or regret for giving up everything else in your life to have a baby um or a desire to have a both you know yes the kids and the other life (laughs) but i mean for so many of us you know we've put decades of work into our careers or our passions or whatever and then no matter how much that baby is the best thing that's ever happened to you and no matter how much you say well nothing will change the baby will just come with me while i do x y and z doesn't work and you know i think we need to give each other space for the fact that you can still be resentful of this tremendous change in your life even if it is you know six pounds of tiny screaming person and it's There's a lot of gray areas in everything in life, and we need to give people space for that. So that's what that is. Well, and your kids are probably getting up to the age where it's a little bit easier to kind of manage that stuff now. And Arlene, your kids are definitely a bit on the the teenagers do what they want. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I've got that extra perspective and, you know, like that whole the days are long and the years are short kind of idea but you know you do kind of forget but when you're in it it, yeah there's it's all consuming and it doesn't it also doesn't leave room for you know recovery you know because so many especially i'm going to say it especially in farming communities where you have that mentality of yeah strap the baby on your chest and and just get back out doing it but that doesn't give room for birth injuries or c-section recovery or you know the fact that you know maybe your child can't be in a dusty environment you know there's there's lots of reason why we need to give people time to recover and that's both in terms of you know regular jobs (laughs) non non non-egg jobs i mean like don't want to be go too full canadian on you but i mean like (laughs) regulated and extended maternity leaves are not just vacations for women. They're times to, you know, recover from a traumatic and difficult experience and to make sure that that kids get raised and can grow up and be safe and healthy. So those things go together. I think it's really important too to remember that even the easiest possible pregnancy and birth is still traumatic. I mean, you are making an entire person and then getting that person from inside your body to outside your body. And that's, you know, I think we get to the point too that it's like you can only even kind of justify resting if you've had some like really dramatic, explosive, everybody almost died kind of birth. And even best case scenario, you know, you're making a person and that does take a real toll on you. And it's bullshit that we think that people should just, you know, three days and then everything's back to normal, you know, get your bikini back on and, you know, your house better be spotless and who cares if you haven't slept in months, you know, anyway. the the discourse around pregnancy i mean especially in the united states over the last couple of years has just gotten so intense and i think that people 
don't really take into account really how traumatic having a baby is because not only is that child growing inside of you, but it's also taking your nutrients. So like you're going to have bone loss because of it. Like there's so many things entailed in just that. And this idea that like, oh, just get back to work, strap the baby on. Also, farming is incredibly dangerous for an adult, let alone a tiny, tiny thing. So, um, yeah, that's a whole other side of it. Like, yeah, you can strap the baby on, but what if that cow kicks you and the baby that's strapped onto you? Like, there's so many, there's big equipment, there's so much involved in all of that. So, it's also yeah, the risk of like, how do you manage? Like, yeah, I could strap the baby on, but do I want to put that baby in that position? Yeah, exactly. We're Katie and I are just <laughs> nodding our heads. <laughs> yeah, I think the other thing too, and it's I feel like something that we try to address on our show is that what if you don't want to? You know, what if you don't want to try and strap this kid on and go out there and deal with this much more stress? What if you want to sit on the couch and cuddle your baby? You know, that is enough. That is a job and. Oh, and yeah, speaking of bone loss, you know, I had great teeth until I had two kids and now my teeth have just gone to shit. And I don't think we give people credit for the fact that like your internal organs completely rearrange themselves to make room for this kid. You know, I mean, you're talking massive physical change. Best case scenario is massive physical change. And that's, and what the hormones do to your brain. Let's just. Oof. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, if you want more of this content, come listen yes. to Barnard Language. <laughs> we promise we do actually like our children. So, well, that's the thing is that um, the idea that we can't hold both of those realities at the same time of like, we can absolutely love something intensely and want nothing different in our life, but at the same time, still desire other things like that's okay <laughs> there's plenty of things right now with like you know the pandemic changed my life in so many ways and it's not all bad but it's not all good and you know having that it's okay to have two thoughts at the same time yep um so what are some of your favorite things about having kids on the farm though Let's <laughs> let's talk yeah, about the so good we, things of having yeah, the kids we, on the farm. We come, yeah, we covered all the hard stuff or some of the hard stuff. Um, for me, it is really special to be living in a place where, um, you know, multiple generations of the same family have been able to live and grow up. And I, I live in a house that my husband's great, great grandfather built. Um, you know, uh, like I said, we live across the road from my my in-laws. And so especially when the, the kids were little, you know, there were times where I felt like my my mother-in-law was as much of a parenting partner as my, my husband was, you know, some days because we really do have a, a close relationship and my kids know their grandparents so well and get to see them every day. Um, and yeah, I mean, watching kids and baby calves together is pretty cute and and having opportunities to give them age appropriate responsibility, I think is, is good for all of us, right? I mean, I think, I know sometimes in the house, I have a harder time even giving up tasks than I, than I think I do in the barn, because it's like, there, go sweep that thing, and it's never going to be perfect, it's just going to get dirty again. So yeah, go ahead and do that, right? Um, the house stuff, it's like, oh, let's just get it done once. <laughs> and hopefully, it's, it's clean and over. But yeah, being able to to have jobs that everybody can work at together, and like these days on Sunday Sunday afternoons, um, we have some part time and staff, but no one else works on uh, Sunday afternoons. So Sunday afternoon is family chore day, and so the six of us are on call for for chores that day. Plus my my father in law still feed calves feeds calves, so um, he's around as well. So yeah, it's nice to have things that we can work on together. And I mean, you talked about the pandemic, but I mean, it was great to have lots of space. <laughs> we have, <laughs> we've got lots of, of acreage and a creek runs through sections of the property and, you know, we could go out and look for frogs or, you know, get around the older ones could drive the side by side around some of the fields and just, you know, 
a lot in a lot of ways our day-to-day -day life didn't change all that much minus the kids being out of school for months on end but yeah there were some days where we could we could actually forget that we were in lockdown because life wasn't wasn't a whole lot different I really appreciate how infrequently I have to tell my kids they can't do something um, <laughs> with the lockdown especially you know I I have friends who live in the cities and we're talking about, you know, having a three-year-old in a fifth floor walk up in New York during lockdown. And I'm like, I would have had to mail them somewhere if we had <laughs> had to do that. You know, we have 300 acres. They can go outside and run in circles and scream as much as they want. And as long as they stay out of the road and don't like hit the electric fence, nothing's going to happen, you know? And so they can just, go be little wild creatures and my kids are dirty basically 24 7 and they're very good at entertaining themselves and watching my kids watch the adults in their lives and watching them learn by doing things is incredible um, and my kids don't have any activities which is great you know we just stay home. I mean, my daughter's in 4-H, both my kids are in school. It's not like we're, you know, total hermits, but I imagine that for the families who are used to, you know, going to the library and going to swimming lessons, and dance classes and music and whatever else, that the pandemic was a lot more shocking than it was for those of us who just didn't go to daycare for a while, you know, and it's a fairly quiet life. We're very lucky to live in a community that has a lot of diversity because we have a packing plant. Um, so we sort of get the best of both worlds, which I love. And yeah, that my kids see their grandparents every day. And, you know, we live in the house that my husband's great grandparents built. And it is, it's, it's special. And I think the best part about having little, little ones is that, you know, people say, Little kids have more problems, but they're small problems where, you know, Arlene's kids can drive. They're, you know, dating. They're, they're doing things that are actually scary where, <laughs> you know, we deal with a lot of drama at our house, but it's about Santa Claus and who picked the last TV show. You know, it's, there's a lot of drama, but none of it's really, none of it's as important as my kids think it is, which is nice. I think that's the same for teenagers, though, really. <laughs> it's just a different kind of drama, but it's still overinflated. <laughs> yeah. We're not fighting over the color of the, the drinking glasses anymore. So that's something. <laughs> um, you both are on farms that are multiple generations owned um, and succession planning is something that we've been talking a lot about in the cheese industry. We just um, in 2019 at our conference, we had uh, an entire session with different cheesemakers who uh, were talking about that. And Alice Birchinoff, who is one of my favorite people in the world, um, is a cheesemaker in Alabama. And her <laughs> response to succession planning was like, well, I'm just going to die. And everything comes with it. Like everything goes with that. Um, so that is something that I'm thinking about with you guys being in the place that you are with multiple generations, but now having kids, do you want to see your kids take over or do you think that they will? I mean, I know, um, Katie, your kids are still pretty young, so it's kind of hard to say, but at 17, you can kind of start to see if that might be of interest. So what are your thoughts on the ideas of succession planning for your kids taking over or not taking over? That's a hard one. And it feels like as soon as you have kids, the, the, the question is already there, right? Because I mean, you have just gone through or hopefully are going through succession planning with the, the other generation that's still <laughs> around, right? So um, if this gives any indication, my 17-year-old got a, a heifer for her birthday this year. Um, so she's definitely cow crazy. Um, and she is applying to universities and has actually accepted a spot in the agricultural science program. So she's definitely interested in agriculture. Um, at this point, she's saying that she wants to work off farm for a while first, which I think would be a fantastic opportunity. I know that's something my husband wishes he could have done. 
Um, but when he, he did get away to university, that's where we actually met. Um, but at that stage of his parents' life, um, they were, he needed to come back. They, they couldn't, they couldn't manage without him. If, if he wasn't coming home, then there would have been different discussions would have had to been had. So we are in a place where she can do that. And if at the end of those years that coming back to the farm is something she still wants to do, I mean, that would be fantastic. And those are discussions that we can have later, but we've also been really clear about wanting her to know that she doesn't have to, that this is not something that we need her to do or that she should feel obligated to do because this life is too hard to do just because you feel like you owe it to somebody else you have to really want it and at this point the she's the oldest and then we've got three boys in a row i wouldn't say that any of them are super interested time will tell um but i wouldn't i would be surprised at this stage if any of them thought that farming was going to be part of their future but i mean you never know sometimes just people who leave the farm for a decade and they're like yeah actually i, I do want that life so I mean, it would be, it would be great if she did, but that's not, it's not on my list of priorities. I can't speak for my husband. You know, it, it's also easier for me to say because it's not my family farm. I did grow up on a farm and my parents are no longer farming and that piece of property has been sold. And in the bigger picture, you know, the fact that they are both still with us and are healthy and happy and can pursue other things in their retirement is also a beautiful thing to see. So, I mean, I'm not tied to somebody having to work this piece of ground. Like I said, it's not my intergenerational legacy to <laughs> maintain. So, right. yeah, that's kind of a, and I will also say that my husband and I, we're in a very lucky position that his parents were open and willing to work with us in succession planning almost from, well, I mean, with my husband from the day he came home from university. And as soon as I was in the picture, they were always willing to have conversations and to, you know, they, we have a, a really good working relationship and, you know, we've had lots of open discussions about the finances and the legal side of things. And so we have, we have, a, a good plan in place, I think, and I hope that is fair to us and to them. And my husband's grandmother is still alive and she's still involved in that process because, you know, the the property was was hers before them. So I mean we have obligations, financial obligations to to both my my grandmother in law and to my in-laws for as long as they are are here with us. So those are things that are also an added responsibility that the next generation, you know, has to kind of keep in mind I guess that the the obligation isn't just to the now but to the the other people who if if we want to retire then we need to get paid somehow right <laughs> so so those are yeah succession planning in any industry is complicated but especially when there's lots of moving parts and and assets living assets too I will say my kids are totally ready to take over now. Um, they're they're quite sure they are. the The current plan seems to be that our daughter is taking over this farm and our son is taking over the neighbor's farm down the hill. Um, no word yet on what the neighbors think of this, but he's he's got it figured out. Um, they also think that they're going to marry each other. So whatever. Um, it has helped us a lot to talk about what our highest priority is for our family. And for us, our highest priority is to keep our family together and functional um, because we know so many people where the family is just disintegrated over who's taking over and how that's happening and who's leaving and who's not. And um, so for us, keeping the family together is ranked above keeping the farm in the family which is still ranked above keeping us operating a farm. Um, I really want my kids to want to farm, but I want them to be happy more than I want them to want to farm. Um, and it's, it's hard because they're four and six. So it's, you know, it feels a little like demanding that they go to medical school or something at this point, like, 
I can have whatever dreams form I want, but that doesn't have Jack to do with what they're actually going to do. Um, but it is also really important to us that they do leave the farm and work for somebody besides us and go places and do things so that they're here because they want to be here and not because they had to. And it is, I think, we're just in a very different place because our kids are so much younger. So. so I'm hearing that the ideal is you want your kids to have that hallmark, um, go off to the big city, go to college, and then, you know, come back home and meet their, you know, <laughs> the rom-com of, of uh, <laughs> the rom-com storyline. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. And then Realistic. we can be the grandmas who look after the cute little babies when we want to. Yeah. Realistically, in towns this small, um, they've probably already met the person they're going to marry if they're going to come home and do it. So, you they know, better find someone around. somewhere else and bring them home with them. That's yeah, what I had to do. I mean, yeah. I grew up in a smallish, I mean, it's small. Um, like when I was growing up, it's like 10,000 people, which in some places that's big, but it's, yeah, I see Katie's face being like, that's huge. Um, but for being 30 miles outside of Portland, it was small. And we knew everybody. So yeah, there, I had to outsource. I had to move to Chicago for a while and bring a Midwestern man back to the West Coast. So <laughs> that, do what you can do. There's different Hallmark movies with different different uh, endings. So yeah, those are, those are both a good option. Um, so one of the topics we've also been talking a lot in the cheese industry is about the consolidation of a lot of things and this is a not necessarily uniquely united states thing but it very much is in a lot of ways um where our dairy farms are being consolidated because of dean foods and walmart and so a lot of these smaller family farms are just rife with i mean there's high suicide rates there's so many issues going on with these smaller farms um I guess I'm just trying to like poke at the the question of like how does that feel for you guys to be in this kind of like smaller not huge commodity size like where does that fit in for you guys what are your thoughts about that I mean I guess like we discussed before being in Canada we do have that protection and yet every time there are negotiations or you know trade agreements get renegotiated then that's scary right like it's scary for all of us then when they give away you know even little bits of the market share you know there's some went to to europe there's a bit more allowed to be imported from some european countries now and next time nafta comes up like all of those trade negotiation times are scary because like milking 80 cows we are actually the average size for the problem we live in and i know that that is not anywhere close to what it is in other places but but we know that that's artificially protected and so so i mean it's it's definitely something that's always kind of underlying you know what's how you feel how how safe you feel kind of in your your industry is you know it's we're doing well and we can you know we're able to make our loan payments and support the debt that we have and all those types of things, make a living as a family on the farm, which I know is not the case in a lot of places. There's a farm our size in the US, I'm sure would not be able to have two people working full time. Um, having socialized medicine is also a part of that. I, I know that that's a reality that we don't have to, I don't have, we don't have supplemental insurance for our family and that's, not as big of a risk for us that means you know we have to pay for our own dental and glasses but beyond that if one of my kids got sick or if my husband or i got sick it wouldn't bankrupt us so those those types of of factors are huge for us and that kind of makes it possible for us to do what we're doing so i need to recognize that that canadian privilege exists we're incredibly lucky that our farm is owned outright and has been sold generation to generation rather than inherited. So we carry an operating loan, you know, for seed and fuel and things for the season um, until we get paid in the fall. 
but we don't have a mortgage for a million dollars. You know, we're not putting in robot milkers that are a million dollars and change. Um, my husband and his father collect old tractors and we're small enough that they can run old tractors. So, you know, for us to buy new equipment is maybe $5,000 for something like a skid loader, but we're not looking at $600,000 for a new combine. You know, we're financially in a very fortunate place um, just from that because we don't we don't have anybody breathing down our necks. I mean, the bank's going to want their operating loan back, but it's not, you know, it's under $20,000, which is a lot of money, but it's not millions. We would not be able to support our family on what we currently make on the farm. I mean, there's a reason we both work off-farm. Because I work in tech, we could afford for my husband to stay home, but he's too social and neither of us would be happy with him being home all day. Um, That's a fair thing scary. to recognize, though, yeah. that he, he shouldn't be home. <laughs> no, 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 it would not be good for anybody. Um, but the, the consolidation is, it's scary. And watching how many people we know who are not farming anymore, you know, and watching uh, the average age of American farmers keeps going up and people keep saying, well, why aren't young people getting into it? But there are no small farms to buy. Um, you know, they've bulldozed the houses. And or they're incredibly inacce inaccessible by price, too. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, there's very few places to get town jobs that are, you know, pay enough to support the farm. And honestly, it's bullshit that we all need town jobs to pay for our farms. Um, you know, to, working to pay to work more is kind of messed up. But we're lacking the community support to do anything about the consolidation. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, and how does someone I, you know. how does someone who has a family with two full-time out off-farm workers with two kids and a farm how do you have the time to do any sort of lobbying or any sort of political action that might have some sort of effect in your community like where would the time even come from for something like that and that is what also makes it incredibly hard because you there's just not, there's not time for that, even though that's what's needed to start creating those systems here. But yeah, it's a, it's, it's a big bummer and we're watching it in farms. And then like the consolidation of distribution these days has been, um, I thought we would come out of the, <clears throat> out of the pandemic with a better idea of, uh, keeping distribution closer to home because that was what was able to flip so easily and be more nimble and adjust. But it seems like it's going the opposite route and it's yeah, your yeah. Canadian privilege is showing Arlene. <laughs> I know I'm sorry, but even things like cooperative models, you know, like that also requires time on the part of the people who are part of it. And I, you know, like the potential of cooperatives is huge because that does put power back into the hands of the people who are producing the thing, but it also requires more time and more, you know, like then you're, you know, you're serving on boards and you're having to like, you know, expand your market and hire people, you know, do, do more things on top of, right, uh, maybe a full-time job and an extra full-time job because you're farming and raising kids, yeah all of those things right i mean there's potential in some of those types of models but yeah it requires even more work yeah from well, from the two percent right or less right i think it's two percent in canada i think it's it's less in in the u.s in terms of like the actual number of people who are farming is the people producing the food is a, is a really small number anymore i think too so much of it is that we have to prioritize the communal good over the personal good. But even if it is important to you, it's really hard to be super excited to 
give up things yourself for the communal good when nobody else is giving up things for the communal good. You know, it's it's hard to be super stoked about it. And yeah, I I think a lot of us hoped that with the, the distribution issues and food price issues and that with the pandemic that people would understand it a little bit more. But it seems like as soon as it stopped being an immediate issue, people were just like, oh, that's fixed. Like, you, you guys, did we not notice how little it took to make this problem now? Like, it's, I don't know, it's scary. That's the key right there, how little it took to make this problem, because it's not like, you know, a two-week shutdown. A lot of places didn't. I mean, Seattle, we obviously shut down for longer than a lot of other places, but I can't imagine Iowa being too closed down for too long. <laughs> Same with Florida. There's a lot of places that were just like, eh, whatever, back at it. And it's uh, so, you know, what, a month of stop caused so many so many issues it's it's pretty wild we don't really need to get into all of the pandemic uh issues because there's so many um so i am going to ask you guys some fun questions these are this is kind of my quick round um that i always ask everybody and hopefully you have some answers because i don't know how involved in cheese or how much you eat cheese on a regular basis. Um, but daily, gonna, let's just go. Okay, there. great. I like to hear that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the first question is what is your current cheese crush? What what cheese have you been just really going after these days? So we were talking about sheep earlier, and we actually have some relatively new neighbors. They've just been here a couple of years who are milking sheep. And when we're talking about the yeah sheep genetics, they've had it. They want to expand, but can't find enough uh, sheep to buy. So they uh, are working on that aspect. But they, we've had had them over a few times, and had, they've brought some of their cheeses with them. They don't make the cheese themselves, but a small local cheese plant does. And so I don't don't even know the name of it because it's like a a custom product for that cheese store but it's like a soft like it's kind of like a brie type cheese with the raw sheep's milk that um is delicious so yeah whenever it comes by i claim that one nice what about you katie we have a local creamery called ww homestead in Wacom, iowa that processes milk from near two dairy farms and they make fresh cheese curds that are chef's kiss um we also have several friends who are cheese makers um so especially lost lake creamery in uh jewel iowa they ship nationally just got my husband a gift subscription for christmas um cheese of the month they do yeah cheese of the month well at least when it's cold out once it starts getting hot shipping cheese is thumbs down around here um but they do seasonal grass-fed cow's milk cheeses are really good so delightful i love that going local we love it um what is your favorite pairing like what how do you like to eat your cheese for the most part do you pair it with something do you eat it with salami jam what, what? i have been on um trying to find like the spiciest like pepper jellies or like i found a, like a spicy pineapple pepper jelly a while ago so like that with a soft cheese and then like you know the kind of cracker that doesn't really taste like anything, but helps you get it into your mouth. Yeah. Crackers are just it, really a vehicle. I mean, yes, let's be real. Yeah. The crunch is good too, though. You know, like it. yeah, the combos is what you need. I want to preface this by saying that I spent 20 years working in restaurants and I used to be a real person who did things like <laughs> eating cheese. Um, around here these days, macaroni. I'll tell you, if you have, you know, those cheese curds that got forgotten in the back of the fridge and like, they're still good, but they're not squeaky. Um, you can take all the little bits and bobs of cheeses that you find and make some really good mac and cheese. Um, we also, I hate it, but I buy the like industrial size bag of pre-shredded cheese, which I'm sure is not actually cheese and is so comforting. God knows what kind of starch, you know, it doesn't melt. 
but our four-year-old will literally just scoop a handful out and shove it in his <laughs> mouth and it's the most disgusting thing but it makes him so happy so that's it's still a good snack. Our, yeah. yeah it's a good snack um and i am here for the cheese bin dump out mac and cheese my um niece's husband still every time i see him on the holidays or whatever he's like can you make that mac and cheese again and i'm like i can't actually because i don't even remember what cheeses were in that i have no idea what was in that cheese like in that mac and cheese and it changes every time so it's a different (laughs) flavor profile right (laughs) so i'm here for the 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 kitchen sink uh mac and cheese (laughs) um okay last one do you have a personal cheese memory? It could be either a time that you were eating or it could be food in general. It doesn't necessarily have to be cheese, but obviously this is a cheese podcast. So like, you know, cheese is usually at the forefront, um, but just any food memory that like is kind of like top tier in your mind. It's like the place that you go to when you're like, wow, I just need a really delicious bite or a time you were with a bunch of people eating really good food, anything like that in your brain that sticks out. Well, when I saw this question, the thing that I thought of was the summer after I graduated from university, I was going on a young farmers exchange to the UK. But before I started that, I did one of those bus tours of Europe. So it was like 10 countries in 10 days or something ridiculous, right? With a bunch of other like 19, 20, 21 year olds. And so we were in Switzerland and like the one night was like cheese fondue night. So I just remember being in this hall and it was probably like not great quality but yeah just the experience of eating with all these people from around the world because you know there were Aussies and people from New Zealand and North America all of these people who were all trekking around Europe for 10 days together and just kind of that that warm experience of warm cheese and hanging out with cool people it doesn't matter the quality of the fondue in that situation. It was the best tasting fondue you've ever had in your life. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> the ambiance adds to the flavor. Definitely. Probably 15 years ago, I was traveling from Iowa to Pennsylvania to visit family, took Amtrak, got stuck in Chicago overnight, and wandered down to Pastoral Cheese, which used to be in what downtown Chicago. And the cheesemonger literally cut me 30-some samples, you know, half bites of basically every cheese in your cabinet. And I dropped eh, $25, probably. I mean, it was at a point in my life that $25 was a sizable chunk of change, you know. And she sold me probably like an ounce of a bunch of different cheeses. And it was... Amazing. I mean, amazing enough that I'm still thinking about it how many years <laughs> later. And I was very, very sad to see that Pastoral has closed, at least downtown. Yeah, it's closed entirely. But yes, uh, I think that um, Pastoral is one of those places that uh, if you were in Chicago, that would be your Chicago cheese memory is going to Pastoral. I think so much of it for me was that even having spent half my life in restaurants, so much artisan food can be very gatekeepy. And to have an experience where someone was so excited to share their knowledge and to to share that with someone who didn't have a huge budget, who wasn't going to, you know, be a returning customer, um, was just such a delight to get to to share excitement about something like that with someone that wasn't monetary. As someone who was a cheesemonger for many, many, many years, that's the sign of a good cheesemonger right there. That's what we're looking for. (laughs) And I had a a manchego with rosemary on the outside that I still think about. So that should tell you something about who I am. (laughs) (laughs) Cheese. Um, is there anything that we didn't cover that you feel we should definitely make a point of saying or? I guess I, the one thing that I thought of when I think of people who are making cheese and maybe 
you know, I'm guessing a lot of people are not actually raising the animals. Some are, some are doing both, but you know, there's a lot of people making cheese out of the, the product that, that we make. I just really appreciate the time and love that goes into the, the steps that they're going through to make their product. And I hope that they know that we are putting a lot of time and love into the, the part that's ours too. You know, like we are doing our best to look after our animals and to, to raise them so they can live long and healthy lives and, you know, feeding them as best as we can and all the things that we have control over, we're doing our best. So we, we appreciate what cheesemakers are doing with the product that, that we produce. And we hope that they uh, they know that we're doing our best too. I think as someone who direct marketed for so long, the joy of getting to see where your product goes and to, to literally be feeding people and to be able to partner with food processors and um, folks who are doing value added things, any of that is, it's incredible and we appreciate it. And it's nice to see our hard work being appreciated and amplified more for the customer. So that's that. Awesome. Well, thank you all so much for joining me and um, everybody out there listening. Go check out Barnyard Language if you want more uh, ag and parenting chats because they're talking about it. They're getting into it. Um, so, yeah, thank you all for joining me. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us on. Thank you, Arlene and Katie, for sharing your lives with us and for creating a space for other farm parents to know they aren't alone. This podcast is recorded, produced, and edited by me, Janae Muha. Musical credits to my husband, Ben Muha. If you'd like to continue the conversation, find me on Instagram, Facebook, or Patreon. Thanks for listening. And remember to keep spreading the word of good curd. Thank you.